what was phenomenal about it was that I found a field that just appealed to me. While we talk with people each day, and we talk about what other people might actually do for a living in communications, right? We, we just kind of share it. Oh, I love this. I can share things with others on someone's behalf. Well, this is fun. A moonlighting gig in investor relations during law school ultimately led Gregory Papajohn to the world of public relations. But the financial crisis of 2007 made him re-examine the type of companies that were deserving of his efforts. Find out how the disruptors to the establishment can sometimes be the ones to follow and then to emulate on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. Today I'm here with Gregory Papajohn and we're going to talk about roads that take others to where they want to be and in doing so finding your own road. So um, Gregory, nice to have you with us. Good morning, Leslie. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. And I start this the same way with everyone. When you were at college, who were you? And when we were about to leave, who did you think you were going to become? Good question. When I arrived, I was the kid with a lot of vowels in his name. Um, <laughs> honestly, I had, the, I had the best first year roommates, but it was Smith and Ray and Holm. And then uh, you add in a Papa John. And there weren't a lot of, there weren't a lot of kids with three syllables. I was a kid figuring things out. You know, if I have a small admission at the first school that I wanted to go to, here's that big admission, wasn't wasn't Dartmouth. I I wanted to go to Georgetown School of Foreign Service. That was like a dream of mine when I was a little kid that had been instilled in me from my mom in particular, uh, this idea of service and global international service. Um, And I visited Georgetown. It's probably the first time I'd been in the D.C. area since like eighth grade. So you college tours. And it was interesting. Like I walked away and I was like, well, maybe I don't want to be here. I didn't love the whole city thing. I grew up in a suburb just outside of Manhattan. My parents are from Manhattan originally. So really familiar with the cities. Love Manhattan, my favorite city in the world. But I was in, in Georgetown, D.C. It's like, I don't know, man, this feels a little big for me. I went to a small public school. And my, my sister, I have one sibling, one older sister. I'm, I'm the, such the baby of the family. I'm the, the younger sibling, and I'm also the youngest cousin. And I'm probably I'm like uh, five grades below my sister, four and a half years or so. And I was like 10 years younger than my next cousin. Wow. So I was really the baby of the family. My sister went to um, Smith College, and she had one year at Dartmouth. So I had been introduced to Dartmouth through my sister. Well, introduced walking up four flights of stairs to, to drop her stuff off and pick her stuff up, stuff up as, as a little brother should do. But I knew Dartmouth and I, and, and I knew she had a, had a great experience in that 12 college exchange she participated in. But in fact, you know, I thought I might want to go to a different school. And then I, I decided to visit Dartmouth again with my, my, my sister wasn't there anymore. And I did one of these like overnight visits. Maybe others did those as well. And I just loved it. I loved it. And it was everything that my sister had said uh, about the college uh, that I didn't really get because I, you know, I was like in eighth grade when she went off to college. But it really suited me. I, I was kind of a sporty kid mixed with a bit of a nerd, mixed with a bit of a civic minded. And Dartmouth, that so felt like the student body. I just felt at home, even though I was in the middle of nowhere, right? Coming from a place that was just outside of this huge metropolis. I felt immediately at home. And even today, the call of like the woods, the trees, 
I, I go up to Dartmouth with some frequency, probably still once a year as much as I, I try. And it's just to walk the campus, just to breathe the air. Uh, I feel immediately relaxed, comfortable. Some of my big life decisions I took after going back to Dartmouth just to have a bit of a, a break from whatever may have been weighing me down. So when I arrived on campus, except for this crazy long name I might have, um, that, that did make me feel a little awkward in a way that I had never felt before. I didn't feel outside of things until I arrived and I noticed some differences. But I was the happiest kid in the world. It so suited me and everything I wanted to be doing. I knew I'd make the right decision. I never looked back on Georgetown. But, you know, that, that's probably who I was when I, when I arrived. And so did that call to service play out in a way that made not doing the Georgetown thing all the better? I, th I think it did. But I think I learned a few things that I didn't understand, you know, and you wouldn't understand when you're still a teenager. There was a lot of things in particular my mom was instilling in me that I just, again, I didn't get it when I was a kid. Uh, but there were these ideas that many years later in a, a graduate program later, too, I'd understand to be known as triple leadership this idea that you can be a, a good actor in the private sector, in the social sector, in the public sector. I didn't have a comprehension of that. And that part of what my parents were instilling in me when they were having me active across the community service that I would have done, the way I was active in the student body before college, the way I, I worked multiple jobs, it all came back. It came into form when I was in college, then studying government. It's interesting, even though I've mentioned foreign service, I've mentioned Georgetown, I didn't immediately know I would be a government major, in fact. I was, uh, first year I was, I was lost. That was 13th grade for me. <laughs> I had to get acclimated to what it would be in a, in, in this type of environment and learn that I, wow, I'm going to choose what my curriculum is. I'm going to choose what I learn. How do I do that? <laughs> right. No, no one's going to judge my choices or are they? And now I have to excel at this or, or do I? It's up to me now. Like I, yes, I'm going to excel at these things. I hope, Right. Um, but that, that determination needs to come from me from within. And prior to that time, a lot of it was from external good influences, thankfully. But now, all these years later, my activity in the community with the public and in particular in the private sectors where I'm quite focused, that they do have a relationship to what was, you know, inspired in the way I should, could possibly think and, and be a good person in the world. I hope, I hope a good person in the world. Yeah. So I'm going to fast forward you through that college career. And as we were hopping off, what was the first way that you took all those life experiences up to that point and said, OK, here's here's the first leap? <laughs> um, it, it was a leap to um, make a whole series of mistakes. <laughs> those are good. Yeah. Lot, lots of great mistakes. <laughs> it was a leap that I was looking for a landing. When Will I stop falling? Oh. Um, thankfully, uh, I did find some sure footing, but it took a while. In college, I took one of our off terms and I worked at a law firm in Manhattan. And I should have known that this idea that I also had of that, that perhaps I'd be an attorney wouldn't be the right path for me. I know you've had this conversation with some others. And, I, and actually, I, I'm so curious of today's graduates. Hopefully, they don't say the same thing that I'm about to say. In our senior year, when suddenly it was thrust upon us that we wouldn't be here anymore, and we probably have to think about these things called jobs, 
you know, there were these five ideas. I call them the five. You right. know, one was that we're going to go work for a bank. One was we're going to be a management consultant. One was that we're going to be a doctor or go to some graduate school of study. One was education. And the fifth one was save the world. Sadly, I couldn't do save the world. I, I didn't have the financial independence and, and the rest to not go earn my keep first. But here I was, I graduate and I go and I work as a paralegal at another large law firm in Manhattan. And I so should have known, don't go to law school. I took my LSAT after working a 24-hour shift, right? <laughs> okay. The partners knew right. I had the LSAT the next day, and, and yet they had me work. I, I, that job, which was a great job, I was introduced to so many, wow, super intelligent people, interesting people who had no lives. They lived at the law firm. The first day I was there, because I had had three months of experience in college, they had me work a 24-hour shift because I had had some experience in college. I came back, I, I got a day off, right, after my 24-hour shift. And then on Wednesday, I worked a 24-hour shift. And still, I took an LSAT, applied to law school, and went to law school. Oh. Oh. <laughs> and went to law school, right? In my first two weeks of law school, um, a professor asked me, so why are you here? And I, I couldn't help myself. I had this like snarky reply, like horribly snarky reply, which was, you know, I never wanted to be the puppet. I always wanted to be the puppeteer. It was this horribly negative, jaded reply, which wasn't how I felt about the law at all. Uh, yeah. it, but it was how I felt about the decision I had made and what a miss it was. Now, I persevered for some crazy reason. I, I completed my degree. But that was a huge miss. And in my last year of law school, knowing that, wow, this is not going to fulfill me. What I didn't want to do was then take a job that perhaps would have a pretty lucrative income and get trapped right. in a lifestyle that I didn't want to live. So jumping off another cliff, I essentially walked the old pavement on Madison Avenue of New York to find this thing called a public relations firm that I knew nothing about. I didn't know what public relations was, but some folks had said to me, you know, it might be transferable. This idea of advocacy in the law could be transferable to commercial advocacy, advertising, public relations, communications. My last year of law school, I was working a financial firm and I was just kind of a night assistant to the general counsel. But during that time, I was introduced to investor relations and they asked me if I would add a few hours during my day and do some IR and then do legal assistance. And I said, yeah, I'm trying to pay for law school. I sure will. Uh, this, is, this is phenomenal. But in fact, what was phenomenal about it was that I found a field that just appealed to me. While we talk with people each day and we talk about what other people might actually do for a living in communications, right? We, we just kind of share it. Oh, I love this. I can share things with others on someone's behalf. Well, this is fun. So I took that next jump and I started knocking on doors to see, hey, do you have an internship? I'd like to get introduced to this thing called public relations. And, and there was a, a woman who was the office manager at the firm that I, I would come to join. And she's like, you're a Dartmouth grad, you're a law school grad, and you're applying for an internship. I was like, well, I, I believe in learning the ropes and I'd love an opportunity. And here's some of my experiences. And if I could have a chance to learn here and apprentice a bit. I think that'd be wonderful. And she's like, well, how about a full-time job? I was like, a full-time job? <laughs> I was like, well, that sounds stupendous. I have to finish my degree. I'm going to finish it at night. And she's like, well, can you manage 40 hours a week? And I was like, that's not a full-time job. <laughs> it's a part-time job. I'm, I'm coming from law. So that sounds good too. And it has benefits. Oh, wow. This is amazing. I'm so, in. 
So I was an account coordinator in my mid-20s, starting all over again in a new profession. And it really, it did really suit me. But this idea, be okay, man, jump off those cliffs, you know, build a plane. It's going to get built and you're going to fly again. I feel that some of my last 25 years since college have been proof of that. Even in the business that I have today, some people think I was nuts when I started my own business four or five years ago. And my actually disposition at the time was that I think I'm nuts to keep working at a place where I don't feel that I'm being all that I can be and all that I can perhaps uh, share with others. But before we get to that, that realization, there was this, there has to be a period of I don't know anything and I'm willing to be an intern to I know enough that I know I'm not exactly doing enough and I'm going to go be my own thing. So what's the progression there and what were the things that you really had to learn to get you to the place where you could do this on behalf of others through your own company? It was so insane how quickly things moved. Things moved so quickly. And what kind of clients were you talking about? Because that kind of... Okay. Um, with a big eye, I was working on things known as internet banks 20 years ago. 20 years and, ago, right. And that'll come full circle with what I might do today. And I was working on things called search portals. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, a great, great company called Lycos would have been a client 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a new idea company called NetBank would have been a, a client 20 years ago. And then some, well, I want to use the boring word, but some known entities like law firms and accounting firms and other professional services firms were also clients. And I was working in a new type of media that was called cable business television and helping my clients. I did what was called financial media relations. And in essence, what does that mean? When you, you, know, you open, say, the Wall Street Journal or good old pink paper, the FT, you read these stories that principally are business and financial stories. And then those are coming online right. into what were called e-zines and dot-com sites, right? Right, right? And being broadcast on relatively new networks, CNBC. And you may, have, you may recall something called CNN FM. Mm -hmm. and, and even MSNBC was still was like newish, right? So these were new mediums where folks were looking to communicate. And my role then was to help principally private companies to relate with a public that was the press, and the financial press. And to think um, how quickly things have moved, yeah. not just media, but I mean, internet bank. and a right, search entire portal. industries. Yeah, crazy. Entire industries. We're, we're only talking two decades ago. Three or four years into my career, I started to work in-house. First at two companies, everybody on this tuning in is going to know. MasterCard was an employer and, and American Express. And if you could imagine that when I was working at MasterCard, that, you know, taxi cabs didn't take credit cards. Convenience stores, which later became known as CVS, didn't take credit cards then. People didn't use things called debit cards then. When I was at MasterCard, there was this joke that I was debit man. One of my bosses was, I mean, just so funny. She um, got this Superman doll and brought it to my desk and, and got me an extra cape. And I was debit man because uh, here I am at what was then really a credit card company. And I'm trying to impress upon people that, you know, maybe they should use this thing called a debit card and stop using your checkbook. And a lot of our messaging bluntly was oriented toward uh, the woman's purse. And instead of going to the checkout at the grocery and bringing out your checkbook, just swipe, 
So all of these silly things, that was 15 years ago. That's right. Right. insane. When I was at American Express, I worked in, not in payments, I started working in travel. And this crazy thing was happening in travel. People were booking their travel, not through an agent, but online. I know. No one thought you'd buy anything over $5 online, right? Right. Booking whole travel plans online. And so I I was working in the incumbent industry. So even at MasterCard, it was this incumbent way. There wasn't Venmo. PayPal was a new thing then. Peer-to-peer payments. Well, that's not safe, says the incumbent, right? Online travel. How secure can you be? Will you get to where you need to go? Talk about anachronistic. But this was pretty important. So I was working in, for me at least, I was working in these incumbent entrenched industries. And I went to one more. Right around the Great Recession, I returned to working at public relations agencies. And my primary client was, a, was Bank of America, big old bank. In fact, Bank of America was a smaller bank then, but they were integrating things like MBNA, if anyone remembers that mm-hmm. credit card issuer. Mm-hmm. They were buying a countrywide, uh, in, now infamous uh, mortgage lender, and LaSalle Bank and so many others. And they were becoming, they were becoming Bank of America. They, they acquired Merrill Lynch. And so it was 2007. And in one month, I had two programs in complete opposition to each other. One was I was going to introduce something called the Bank America card. And the other was a reputational crisis. And it was called, a, if memory serves, the Master Liquidity Equity Condo, the MLEC or something. And this was a collection of banks saying, hey, there's something going wrong with the credit markets. They're getting gunky. So on one side, I'm on phone calls about credit markets are gunky. On the other side, I'm going to introduce a brand new credit card that's kind of the first post-acquisition of MBNA product. And we're going to do that on Black Friday in New York City. And we erected on 33rd Street, I think it was. There was an empty lot. We built, we built a, a store made of glass, enough glass to wrap around a football field a couple of times. It had a bow on it, a steel, huge bow. This building was up for all of 10 days. And it was built as a concierge. You go in, you get hot chocolate. There'd be, you know, corollers. You could book tickets to a theater because it was bringing together or bringing to life the then attributes of the card, this service you could get through a credit card. And then the other year was something's not right with the credit market. And again, I was working for an incumbent business and something crazy happened in the industry. Everything failed, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were harmed and hurt. And it was that industry that I worked with that was creating and participating in the harm. I said, I can't do this. It's not right. And I made all sorts of, I think, were good ideas. And, and you know what? The bank implemented a lot of these good ideas at the time. Uh, it wasn't just me. Me and the folks we were working with where, hey, we know. We get the direct deposit of people. We know that they've lost their jobs. Can't we waive fees? I think we can do that. And we know that they go to an ATM. They're getting charged by us. Can't we bring those charges down? Can't we take better actions? And now I'm watching the market as one does in, in any field. And I'm seeing new companies come to life. These new companies had funky names. Social finance was one of them. Now it's called SoFi, huge company in the financial space. And they had names like that would become to be known that you might have heard, like the Benmos of the world. I'm like, what are those guys doing? So they're private companies. And they're saying, hey, we can transform. We can bring technology and change the relationship that people have with their money and the relationship that they have with the business itself. And so that started to head me on a new path, which was, 
the guy who represented some of these big brands, the MasterCard and the American Expresses and the, the Bank of America to say, no, you know what? I want to focus on those who are generating a social impact through their service. I left that role and came to run a and recreated a corporate social responsibility, corporate citizenship business within a public relations firm. That public relations firm had been built partly on that business, but then it let it kind of go to bed and we resurrected it. And so now I was working in this field of social entrepreneurship and corporate activism or corporate citizenship. And that allowed me to kind of Mm -hmm. begin a transition from hardcore financial media relations guy to corporate communications on behalf of these incumbent world-renowned brands to social entrepreneurship. And then today into working with privately held companies who are trying to bring new disruption to age-old industries, a space called fintech or financial technology. Yeah. And so you saw the need to do something that more aligned with your values and, and what was important. And then you saw, okay, well, no one else is really doing this. So I have to go do that. So tell me about the Archie Group and how, like, what was the beginnings of it like? One thing that happened was that I was realizing that I wasn't staying in one job for any amount of time. I was like, how did I become a switcher? I didn't really think of myself that way. Some of it has to do with the industry that I work in, where you represent a a customer and the relationship changes, and so your role changes. And so, in fact, you learn that you're not always connected to the agency in my field. You're connected to the account, and things can move around. Some of it was this idea that I work in an industry that adopted the name agency, and that's almost like the last thing they do. Agency is something you give to somebody else. Agency isn't something you hold on to. You give that to someone else. You're supposed to be providing leverage to others, not to yourself. But you can work in these environments and find that they have exactly the constraints they should not have to lend agency. They do not have the capacity to do more or the ability to do less even. They're inflexible. Mm And they're generalists as opposed to specialists. They lack kind of the capability, the domain expertise or discipline expertise that's, again, extensible. They're structured in a way to do something particularly well. And that thing isn't a good thing. That thing is to be as efficient as they can on a thing called a billable hour. That is so lame. But you learn that when you work at an agency. So they have this financial motive And I used to get in all sorts of trouble because I'd be like, gosh, we're like a factory. And the thing that we produce is a billable hour. Wow, that's boring. What else could we do with our time? And so I I, I became the switcher, as I was describing, where I said, there has to be an environment that perhaps with, you know, my motives and my ideas, and I don't know, just could be a better Petri dish to test some of these things out. And so on, on my change in career, I went away from the big firms and I looked at a San Francisco boutique. I knew I wanted to get around tech because I was talking about tech-enabled finance. And there was a San Francisco boutique firm that was trying to build out its presence in New York. And I joined it. I was there maybe six to nine months, but it was the most consequential experience I've had because it was the first venture capital client I had, two of them. I came to represent two, one particularly uh, well-known venture capital firm, and then one that had a particularly ha- has a really astute managing partner. And working with a VC firm, I began to understand how private capital markets work. I've been working with all these publicly held companies. And I got introduced to these people called founders. <laughs> I was never around a founder. I was around people called CEOs. 
mm-hmm. people called board directors and people with 600 million different titles, but probably really had no authority. And now suddenly I'm around founder entrepreneurs. So I go from the 150 year old companies to just born, not selling anything and not making any money and trying to figure out how to get even one customer types of client companies, total divergence. But I'm now introduced to venture capital and investors in this thing called fintech, which I had some familiarity with, but I was trying to sort out. I was like, this is so it. This is so it. I'm going to work in, at the intersection of private capital and technology-enabled finance, delivering social impact, socially beneficial businesses. I can't think of anything more rewarding for me to do in the private sector right now. And I was there for nine months. Why was I there for nine months? Because I, I then got poached by another firm that, that basically said, hey, we know you're the only guy doing that at that place. And we keep competing with you and it's annoying. Why don't you just join us? We've got 25, 30 people doing this here. And I'm at that job. And, and what happens in jobs is crazy things happen when you work uh, in the private sector. Three months after I'm there, the, the folks who brought me over and hired me, they all quit. <laughs> they quit and they went and they started their own firm. Three mm-hmm. months later. Now, keep in mind, I was someone coming from established firms, established companies. I try this funky SF thing. I like it, but it's too small. I get lured over to a platform thinking I'm going to a stable place, an established firm that only does this thing. Three months later, they're all gone. So in my own story, 18 months later, after they peeped out, I said, I can do that too. And I had written a bit of a Jerry Maguire moment. I had written a game plan for my boss. And I said, hey, we've stabilized the business here and we've made it past this decisive moment that could have ended our business. And we're about to flourish again. And I'd like to execute this plan and be a partner with you in doing it. And we had a very professional conversation. It was all good. And he said, no. And then I did something I hadn't done before with the absolute kick in the butt from my wife who had been coaxing me to do this for many years. I said yes to something. I said yes to that plan. I said yes that I could be a founder entrepreneur too. I'd never been, I'd been the corporate guy. I hadn't been an entrepreneur, but my wife was always saying, you've always been an entrepreneur. Just listen to what you were trying to inspire at these companies. I was like, well, that, that's entrepreneurism. I, I, I'm not familiar with that. It's like, you'd be surprised how familiar you are with it. And so I left my job the next day. I, I'd come up, I hadn't before this day, I came up with the name of this company, Archimedes, drawn from Archimedes of Syracuse, who's a counselor to a king, inventive problem solver. And then I just made it more, I don't know, today, more modern. So modern, apparently, that you know, a certain royal family thinks that Archie's a pretty cool name, too. <laughs> so Archimedes became Archie. And we play off the Archimedes lever and give leverage. We're an operating partner to our companies. And we give them leverage in this space known as reputation. I call it reputation capital. It's said in my field that a brand is a promise you make and your reputation is whether you keep that promise. And so I spend time working with young companies. They're in a growth stage, but they're teenagers at best or, or tweens, most of them, and helping them to create an, or identify in the first instance what their reputation could even be, what promises have they made, and then to nurture that and to give it a soul and to work thoughtfully with your stakeholders so that you can build equity, deposits of goodwill with you and others. And that's how I spend my time in, in, the, in the private world. And it's great. You know, I was able to create a business where we're fully remote. We weren't trying to be nouveau in that. But the thought was that here we are, grayer haired people who perhaps have three children and want to spend more time with their family. 
a point of view that work is where the work is. And sometimes that's on a computer screen and sometimes you can do that at home and sometimes you're on side of the client. And now I can be more engaged in my community and give back. And, you know, the other day I was talking with my wife about maybe I'll take that foreign service exam, something that maybe when I, in a few more years, when I turned 50 or so, perhaps I prepared for and taken that exam. And she was telling me that, I guess, I guess you have till you're 59. <laughs> yeah, Joey, Joey Hood came on and told us all that. So yes, you have, we have more time. Yeah. So the world that I've lived in has been one of really long days. And really short years, as the expression goes, I've felt that, but it's been beautiful. I look back to Dartmouth and I say, Dartmouth inspired me to have fun when you're doing it. Have, you know, I, I was talking about this sort of sensitive thing of a, of a kid with a lot of vowels in his name and feeling a little awkward and, and different. There is nothing more blessed than being different. And if you can find a way to embrace that, about yourself and about others, life is just so much more enriching. And that's come to be with Archie where we work with young companies who all aim in the first instance to change something, to be different, right? To switch and to be cool with it. And I think I've I've found my place. In fact, Archie has been my longest employer. That was even one of my goals. I have so many goals, but one of them was that I thought that Archie might be my longest employer. And in fact, we celebrated that as an anniversary uh, recently, and that was really exciting. Um, and I thought that Archie could be a workplace for so many colleagues that I lost in my past careers, particularly women. My industry is about two-thirds, if not more women. Many women leave the field for all the reasons that I think we, we can acknowledge and imagine, and I thought that that was wrong. So with Archie, we've tried to devise, not only are you perhaps closer to your home or community when you work, you decide what full-time employment means to you. It's something I learned, even if I use that analogy that I had when I worked at, in law, I was working 80 hours a week, and then they gave me a full-time job at 40 hours. It's like, well, that's, that's part-time. Well, now, all these years later, full-time should be decided more by the employee. And so if 10 hours is what you have, or four hours, or one day, or one project, that's full-time employment, and we can embrace that. And so our model is structured as a collective, we're all members. Actually, we don't have any W-2s today, you know, full-time employees. Everyone is an independent, either consultant or small agency group. And we come together and think about what full-time means to us and what we want to jointly, collaboratively deliver impact on. Well, I've said this on a number of other occasions, but this is one of those podcasts where I wish it were a video podcast because people need to see your glow when you talk about this. And I can't imagine that your face did those kinds of contortions when you were pulling those all-nighters at the law firm. So it sounds like this really is the sweet spot for you, at least for now. Hey, look, if the law firm did anything, it renewed my love for coffee. Um, (laughs) It really did. And for wacky, kooky conversations, the only ones you'd have between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. It really was a special people in a special place, and I don't miss it. Right. Right. I do hope, though, that, you know, in this next, whatever the next chapter might be, whatever the next pivot, that there are two areas of my life that I feel have been underinvested in, going back to where we started our conversation. I do want to spend way more time than I'm able to currently in my community. And thinking about the day that we're speaking here on, on the inauguration day, we learned a lot about leadership at Dartmouth. And I think it's really important. And, and there used to be an expectation, I, I really mean this 
the right way to everyone who might tune in, that folks who go to colleges like Dartmouth lead. And there can't be a void. And we can't permit the void. And diplomacy and, and thoughtfulness and considered ways, a bit of a benevolence, I've let go of that responsibility. I, I view that as a personal responsibility that I owe that um, back to our society. And I haven't spent enough time in it and as much as I thought I would when I was young. And part of it is like anyone, you're seeking sort of that, at least in my case, I guess, some personal financial security and you're making life choices about your family. And we've talked plenty about career here. But I, I would hope that next time we speak, Leslie, that perhaps what I'm talking about is not career. I'm talking about service and servant leadership and, you know, all the good things you and I and others are doing for those around us. That's my great hope. If I'm a success with something like Archie, I call it a generational business. It's a business then that can be shared and passed on to others. But it's also something that, that perhaps would give me that comfort to say, my time is done in the private sector. How can I be as forceful, I hope, of a contributor to social and, and, and public sectors that, that need us, that need the graduates of Dartmouth College? Well, I think that you will get there because it, they do need you and you seem like a willing servant. So <laughs> I'm excited for that conversation when we get to have it in the future, but I'm very happy for the one that we just had. So thank you so much for sharing all this with I'm really appreciative of our time. A lot of fun. Thank you. That was Gregory Papajohn, a public relations expert with a history of serving big established financial players. He founded the Archie Group, a public relations marketing and advisory services firm that positions fintech and other emerging businesses and helps them position themselves in the market, acquire customers and partners, and develop reputational capital. Find out more at archiegroup.com. And find me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, at roadstakenshow.com and with another fascinating friend on the next episode of Roads Taken.